Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Well, despite pollsters' predictions, this election has turned out to be a nail-biter. As we're recording on the afternoon of November 4th, control of the House, Senate, and White House has yet to be decided. In the midst of this uncertainty, what's the post-election outlook for education? Well, this morning, I moderated an AEI web event where I spoke with Third Way's Lene Erickson, Donna Harris-Akins of the NEA, Roberto Rodriguez of Teach Plus, and my AEI colleagues Rick Hess and Jason Delisle. We talked about the election and how it could affect COVID relief for schools, the push for free college, school choice, and a slew of other education issues. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to this AEI post-election event. What will the 2020 elections mean for education? And I'd like to welcome all of you tuning in after a a long night, still may seem like nighttime to to many of you, and we're still waiting for the election results to come in, but there is just an enormous amount to talk about. We have a fantastic lineup of, of folks to discuss what's happening with the elections and what it might mean for education in the year. So we're looking forward to taking stock of these results and what what results might uh, end up when the final tally is counted for education. So let me introduce my five guests on the panel now. Jason Delisle is a resident fellow here at AEI in Education Policy Studies, where he works with higher education finance with an emphasis on student loan programs. Lene Erickson is the Senior Vice President for the Social Policy and Politics at Third Way. She works towards advancing moderate-led U.S. politics and works on issues including immigration, abortion, religious liberty, guns, and education. Donna Harris-Akins is the Senior Director of Education Policy and Practice at the National Education Association, where she advocates for students, educators, and educational initiatives to support equity and excellence in American schools. Uh, Rick Hess is the Director of AEI's Education Policy Studies Program. He is the author of Education Week's popular blog, Rick Hess Straight Up, and a regular contributor to Forbes, The Hill, and a number of other outlets. He serves also as the executive editor of Education Next. Thanks for being here, Rick. And last, but certainly not least, Roberto Rodriguez is the president and CEO of Teach Plus. Roberto is a nationally recognized expert in education policy and governance and is known for his leadership building multi-sector partnerships with schools, families, and communities to provide educational opportunities for all children. So I want to welcome my guests on, and I want to start off with a quick round robin. Uh, We have a, a, a lot of guests and a lot of issues. Roberto, let me start out with you. What surprised you most about the election outcomes last night or lack of election outcomes as it may be? Well, thanks, Nat. It's great to be with you this morning, albeit a little blurry-eyed from uh, still awaiting the results. You know, I will say uh, I'm not surprised that we don't yet have a um, uh, declared winner here. This is, uh, as you know, we look at past presidential elections, and it's uh, clearly still a lot of votes to be counted. I think the thing that's most surprising and encouraging to me is is the number of early ballots that were cast, mail-in ballots. I mean, we've never navigated a presidential election amidst a national pandemic. And we had over 64 million folks mail-in ballots. 
I was really surprised to learn how diverse and different state rules are around when you count those ballots, how they factor in to the account on election night. So certainly still a lot of counting to do, but great civic turnout. Jason, most surprising aspect of the night. Well, I guess I'm, I'm surprised at how close it seems. For some reason, I had it in my head that, yeah, I realized that we'd be counting for a while, et cetera. But I, I just thought, I thought it would be clearer. I thought there'd be more counting, but we'd know more at this point, which it suggests a, a, much, a much tighter race than I guess I was, I was led to believe. Maybe, I'm, maybe I need to check my sources. Uh, it, that was certainly our expectation when we scheduled this for 10 in the morning, the day after the election. Donna, your most surprising aspect. I think the persistence of the folks who were early voting. Uh, I think there was a lot of momentum early uh, this fall around early voting. Uh, and, you know, I don't think people expected that to continue and to actually get stronger and deeper as we move closer to election day. But it did. Uh, which is why we have a delay because so many people voted early and used absentee ballots and far greater numbers, as Roberto mentioned. Uh, and so, you know, we wait a few days and that's okay. We'll, we'll count every vote and we'll be done. Rick? Pretty much everything. I thought, you know, I, th- I thought Vice President Biden was going to carry 320, 330 electoral votes. The, the polling certainly seemed to indicate that he was up by six, seven, eight points nationally. So, I mean, I'm surprised. You know, Trump's the only president in the history of modern polling never to have touched 50 percent in office. I I thought all of us were sick of the guy. And so kind of shocked to see, you know, it it as tight as it is. I thought the Dems were going to take the Senate. I was, you know, I'm surprised to see Susan Collins still leading in Maine. I'm surprised to see Tillis seemingly ahead in North Carolina, I think, with uh, about 100 percent of precincts now in. Uh, I thought the Dems were going to expand their margin in the House. Right now, it's looking like the R's are on track to maybe uh, cut by half the Democrats' majority uh, in the House to where it's going to be a lot tighter than it was the last two years. I'm sure somebody somewhere, I know Trafalgar saw some of this coming, but, uh, you know, most of it caught me, you know, I didn't see it coming. Lene. I think what surprised me the most was how bad it felt to um, watch the different states count in different ways, because I knew all of this, right? I had read all of the things about who's counting mail-in first versus who's counting in person first. And, but watching it just felt so chaotic. And I'm like, someone's ahead here, but is that a real lead? And what does it mean? And I just think this, um, this year and having so many mail-in votes and having such a uh, difference between the partisanship and who mailed in versus who was in person just made for some crazy moments where you saw people ahead where their lead wasn't going to persist, but the reporting of it looked very funky. So uh, it was all very anxiety producing, but uh, I think ultimately we're going to see now based on the votes that are, are coming in that Joe Biden is going to win. Democrats are not going to retake the Senate. And so we end up back in divided control um, and, you know, there's there's a lot to work through about what that means. Let's just look a little bit backwards and ask the question that I usually ask in this thing. How important was education to the election this time? And most of the time we think about election as, you know, one of those issues that people flag, but doesn't actually make a material difference in a lot of people's voting records. But I mean, you could make the case that this year it's a little bit more salient, given that there's millions of college students sitting at home rather than being at college. And there's 
millions of kids right now doing school in this format instead of, you know, in the buildings where we would all agree they belong. So my question is, was education uh, a salient event in any of these races or was it taking its usual sort of fourth or fifth place spot? Education was definitely on the ballot this time all across the country for all the reasons you mentioned and more. It definitely wasn't fourth or fifth. And because of the intersections with education, with the economy, with health and safety, with racial and social justice, uh, it served as a point of intersectionality that I think some people did not realize before um, how it all connects and why we need to make sure public education and higher ed are actually systems that work for all of our students. And I, quite frankly, I think it's here to stay as an issue, a top issue. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd go at it a little differently than Donna. I mean, for me, when you think about the presidential elections where education played a narrative role, most famously Bush in 2000 uh, or Obama in 2008, I'd argue that the presidents really used it to play against type. Trying to reposition the Republicans after eight years of Clinton, uh, Bush in 2000 really used No Child Left Behind as a way to say, wait a minute, we're serious about equal opportunity. It's not just talk. I actually want to make sure every kid gets a chance to learn. In 2008, Obama led into the middle from the other direction with education. He said, hey, I'm open to school choice. I'm talking about money for college, but it's got to be an investment. It's not just taxing and spending. So I would argue that when you, when you look back, and I think you can make the same case about Bush 41, you know, in national elections, education has been a way that the right says we believe in opportunity and the left says we believe in personal responsibility. And I don't think that's how either side really used it in 2016 or this year. Trump used education much more as a culture war crusade. Open the schools now, hell with the science, let's just talk, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I would argue that Biden very, very much uh, wound up with an education platform that looked a lot like uh, what Warren or Sanders were offering back in the spring. And, you know, and if you're talking to your base in an election like this, in a polarized country in the time of COVID, I mean, I think Don is right that people obviously see why education is important, but I just don't think, you know, when you talk to many folks, that minds were changed or narratives were written because of education this time. Well, and I also think the swing voters were very torn on this, right? I mean, I have virtual fifth grade going on in, in my next room. Like, I don't want that to be the case, but do I want uh, schools to be forced to open in a way that's unsafe? No. Um, so I think there, there are also in, in all communities, education is super high salience right now, but we're not quite sure what to do about this specific issue and how to make sure our kids can get back in school safely um, and, and not put other people in danger and not put teachers in danger. So if I thought one or the other of the presidential candidates could magically make us all safely go back to school, I'd be thrilled, but I don't think that's the situation we're in. Yeah, you know, I, it is definitely a year like no other. And I think, it, you know, as Rick and Lene have, have uh, alluded to, right, COVID certainly was on the mind of every voter, I would argue. And, you know, as Donna said, there's so much intersectionality with that to education, uh, to the well-being, to the ability for the economy to move forward too. So I think people, you know, have a depth of appreciation for uh, teachers and for teaching and learning and the readiness of our system to respond to COVID, to the unprecedented um, disruption 
uh, you know, to thinking about how we equip our classrooms so that they are, you know, so that our students are healthy and safe and our, and our educators are healthy and safe, uh, delivering the dollars that we need to make sure that uh, our system can recover from this pandemic. I feel like those were issues that voters appreciated in a very personal way, because just as we've said, like so many students across the country are learning remotely. So many students in higher education are learning from their parents' homes rather than being on campus. Uh, we're in unprecedented times here. So it does bring the, 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 the question around equipping our system uh, to provide opportunity for everybody. That brings that kind of front and center. Well, let me follow up on this. When we're looking at the top of the ticket, right? We have uh, a lot of concerns about the kids in my living room who are on Zoom. Um, do we think that the fallout from the election, whether Biden wins or Trump wins, is going to make a material difference for you know K-12 school reopenings in the near term? Or is the distance between the White House and the schoolhouse too great to expect you know, near-term changes, depending on the outcome of that race. I, you know, Ned, I'll jump in and say, I think it makes a huge difference uh, for our ability to reopen and for our students to be able to recover and be supported, right? The inequities that we've seen across this pandemic, a lot of inequities already in our system around how we fund our schools, around whether students have access to digital learning and digital equity and the internet. Those were around even before COVID. COVID has laid those bare. Um, so I think, uh, you know, the urgency to address a really comprehensive approach to uh, supporting the recovery of our education system it is there. And, um, you know, the point of reference I have is the Recovery Act that I worked on when I was in the Senate prior to being in the Obama administration. And you saw an administration lean really heavily into the need to forge recovery package on a bipartisan basis, right? President Obama was in that Senate chamber talking to Senator Snow and others to forge that deal, move forward with $105 billion in aid for education, uh, $56 billion to support and stabilize K-12 funding across our states, bipartisan governors joining to make that, a, make that an opportunity, a reality. We've seen exactly the opposite here. We don't have a deal. We don't have the funding that's needed to reopen our schools. We've only spent thir $13 billion. You know, the need is in the hundreds of billions. And, you know, and then we have a lot of, uh, unfortunately, I've seen, I think, just a lot of blame and bluster laid at the feet of superintendents and teachers, rather than actually getting to work with Congress to get the funding needed to to move forward from COVID. So that, that matters. I think that matters to kids and to families uh, in, a, in a big way. And I'm sure Rick and Donna have thoughts on this too. So I'll just say something very briefly, which is we're going to have divided government. So we're going to have to, we're going to have to negotiate a relief package. But I think that the good news is that um, there's only going to be one Republican to negotiate with, and he is a much more reliable negotiating partner than the one we've had. And right now, um, you know, between Trump and Mnuchin and McConnell and McCarthy, nobody even knows what the Republicans want. So it's been very difficult to even track that. Um, and now they'll be united behind Mitch McConnell and hopefully we can get something done. I hope no one thought that, you know, the day after election day that schools would be open again, miraculously. Like there's a lot that has to happen. The question is, 
who's going to be leading the charge to make it happen because it does matter how it happens. It matters what happens when they reopen. It matters what schools and and our communities look like once we get past the pandemic, because at some point we will be past the pandemic. Uh, and what are we doing right now to make sure that schools are better than they were before the pandemic started? Um, as was mentioned before, there are issues in the system. There are a lot of schools that are and educators who are supporting students. The system itself, however, needs to be updated. It was not designed for the purpose for which it is needed today. And so we have to take the steps to get there. We're in the middle of multiple crises, but in the middle of the crises, you actually have to plan for what it looks like as you're coming out of it. And we would suggest that one of the ways to get out of it and one of the ways to make things better in our communities is actually to strengthen the public education system um, to make sure that you're actually doing right by kids um, and giving them what they need to reach their dreams and excel. And so elections matter. Those choices about what it looks like matter. And fortunately or unfortunately, the people who are making decisions are those who are elected and their teams. And so we have a, have a view on that, uh, as does everyone here. But it, it is definitely a, an election of of choice at this point. It's an election of values and what you actually value in this country, um, of your neighbors, of your kids, of your families, uh, and it, definitely on the ballot this cycle. Jason, I'm interested in your take on the the possibility of a stimulus package. You know, we've been waiting, looking for an agreement, and one has not been forthcoming, although a lot of folks on many sides think something needs to be done. What's the likelihood of some sort of stimulus coming out before Inauguration Day, depending on how these races uh, end up falling out? Well, I don't, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, sometimes what you might be looking at a, at a, lame duck where one party's going out and others coming in. Uh, in that case, you know, you everybody will want to wait. Uh, but if it's, a, if it's like, we're looking down on the possibility here of everything kind of being the same in terms of the way that the government is divided up, then, you know, maybe they realize, hey, we're gonna have the same setup in January. Uh, so we might, as well get, we might as well compromise now and figure something out now before waiting and, until inauguration. So I think those are the, those are the sort of two paths. I, I mean, unfortunately, it, it doesn't seem like, well, how urgent is it? It doesn't seem to be really play in there, right? You know, uh, if you thought this was really, really important, we would just figure it out as soon as possible. But this, this is how it is. If experience is any guide. Let's talk higher education for, for a moment. There's a lot of variables that have been in play in the election, but it seems like certainly in the on the Democratic primaries and, and throughout, there's been a lot of uh, attention to higher education issues and a desire for action there. The Higher Education Act has perennially be, been on the legislative docket. What is the likelihood that we're going to see action on higher education policy over the next year, given the way things are look like they're shaking out and, and how might uh, a President Biden or President Trump taking office uh, affect the likelihood of, of action in higher education policy. Lene? I think there's going to be a lot of action at the executive level. I think there are a, a ton of things that a Joe Biden administration is going to want to undo that Betsy DeVos did, uh, particularly towards for-profits. Um, and they're going to be aggressive in doing that, um, in particular because they probably aren't going to have a huge legislative agenda in the first Congress 
given that it, there will likely be, you know, divided control. So they're not going to do a big, you know, debt forgiveness package or um, fight about, you know, how left to go on a reconciliation bill if Democrats don't have the Senate. So in some ways, it, you know, just really takes the air out of the debates around free college and debt relief and all of those things, because we, we now have a place where we have to be bipartisan. And I don't think anyone in the Republican Party is asking, you know, how much blanket debt forgiveness should we do? Jason, I'm curious as to your thoughts about the action in higher ed space. Yeah, I guess, I mean, uh, you know, for the past three, four months, I've been really surprised uh, at how little talk there is, even from the candidates themselves, about the, the higher ed platform, you know, on the, on the Democratic side, given how radical it is. I mean, it is absolutely huge. And the, but it's like nobody wants to talk about it. Maybe that's because of COVID. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're talking about the sort of the biggest change in the role of the federal government in, in higher education uh, in, in many, many decades, right? The, a national free college plan is, is a really big deal. Uh, and doubling the Pell Grant is a really big deal, yet kind of quiet about it, um, you know? Uh, so I, I'm not, I, I don't, I would love to hear other people's thoughts on why we haven't heard so much about it, given how grand it is. I think there's a big difference between campaigning and governing, and everyone knows that. So that's part of it. <laughs> you know, I, I and, and COVID is certainly a, a factor too, Jason, as you acknowledged, right? I mean, I think right now our American higher education system is is also facing unprecedented times, you know, and looking at their revenue and their enrollment and their international enrollment, for which is so important so on so many campuses, as you know, and has been depressed by this pandemic. Um, you know, I do think the country is ready for a conversation and a commitment to post-secondary education. I think the public understands that uh, a vast majority of jobs demand some level of post-secondary training. Uh, you know, there were uh, big proposals in the Obama years around free community college and as well. So uh, I expect we'll see more conversation and discussion around that moving forward. And, you know, to Lene's point also, um, thinking about how to address some of the um, rules that have been rolled back by the Trump administration, particularly around the gainful employment rule, but also around borrowers and borrower defense, right? I think the reality is we're still seeing so many students who have been victim to predatory lenders and and schools as well that, um, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of the structures that were in place uh, at the end of the Obama administration in the Department of Education at uh, CFPB uh, to protect borrowers in the higher education marketplace. Those structures have been dismantled. So I think you will see increased attention to uh, bring that conversation and the uh, priority to borrowers front and center as well. I agree. And I think one of the winners in the uh, somewhat silent conversation about higher ed are community colleges. And that's a bipartisan issue. That is not a democratic issue. Uh, this, it's the heart of higher ed and provides education for so many people of all age groups um, and allows people to pivot when they need to into different careers. And, you know, it, it's, it is one of the conversations that often gets overlooked in the larger higher ed issues. But I think community colleges have found their place in the national dialogue. Um, and I suspect it will continue. 
And there are a lot of things that can happen administratively to ease people's movement through the higher ed system or through loan forgiveness or anything else, uh, because some of the rules that were in place or some of the procedures that were that are uh, not followed. Uh, so regardless of outcome, we want to make sure that we're actually moving forward and fixing the things that need to be fixed. Regardless of what happens in Congress, there are things that can happen administratively fairly immediately that need to happen. Rick, I'm curious about your take on that. I mean, how much administrative action do you think we'll see? And, you know, it, Trump could could win the election. And if so, are we bound to see more administrative action on his side? Or is it only likely to be triggered if uh, we have a Biden administration? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say it's not a long shot, right? I mean, I think I haven't checked the betting lines this morning. I think, you know, the odds are that Biden, the, the anticipation is Biden's more likely to win. But this is very much up in the air. And, and I think what you're hearing, what, what, what viewers are hearing is some of, you know, there, there are honest, substantial good faith differences about things like borrower defense, about the role of for-profits that I think have not been covered in the education or mainstream medias over the last four years as good faith disputes. They have been covered as if they are some kind of nefarious scheme by Betsy DeVos to fit. And I think that's ludicrous. Um, I think borrower defense, I think the bar defense adjustments made by the Trump administration have been healthy and sensible. I think the idea that class action suits should benefit people who do not show actual harm is just too long, too broad and too intimidating to the colleges in question. I think for profits have an important role to play. I certainly would agree with my with my friends that there are absolutely cases where for profits have engaged in shady or unacceptable behavior. No doubt. But I would argue that what the Trump administration has done is pushed us towards a more measured regulation of for-profits. We can disagree. We do disagree. But I think, you know, one of the lessons I think I take away out of this is that I think there's a lot of people, you know, who, who, who are not processing the things we're seeing and experiencing the way that the narrative uh, that gets reported by education outlets, the Inside Higher Eds and the Chronicle of Higher Eds, um, in the Washington Post, New York Times, you know, it, it seems to me that the way they're supposed to understand so much that DeVos and Trump have done is maybe not how they're actually processing it. So look, I think one, it if Trump wins, I think you will see a heightened comfort level among, say, especially Senate Republicans, some of the fights Trump has picked, say, with colleges and universities over things like anti-bias training is not as crazy and out there as they might have feared, that it's not um, an alienating looter. When Trump's running better with Latinos or with Black voters in 2020 than he was in 2016, I think it's going to cause a lot of people to say, hey, maybe we need to re-examine some of our assumptions about these fights Trump is picking. If Biden wins, you will absolutely, as, as my friends indicated, uh, see a Biden administration try to move against what DeVos has done on Title IX, on for-profit college. Absolutely. That, there will be a couple of things. One, Lene's pointed out that right now it looks like the Republicans are more likely to hold a totally, really slender Senate majority than not, something like 51-49. But it could still go the other way. You, you know, the Georgia races look like they're very likely to go to runoff, perhaps both of them. We don't know how Maine is going to come down. So we're going to have to see. You know, if it's even 50-50, though, and Biden wins, then suddenly a whole lot of this rests on Joe Manchin's plate. And I think that means that the Democrats, even if they have feel like they have that tie-breaking vote, they're going to be a lot more constrained in a lot of what we're talking about than they might imagine. 
That means a lot of this will be pursued via executive action, which means it's going to go to courts. And it'll be interesting because I think we're going to be on a rip, major hypocrisy alert. All of the Republicans who have been frustrated by lawsuits against Trump administration actions for the last four years, who've been talking about how can the Democrats not respect a duly elected president, are going to suddenly be saying checks and balances, the courts have a role to play. And all the Democrats who have praised the noble resistance are suddenly going to complain about obstruction. And, you know, I, I, you know, I think we would all be, you know, we'd all do well to have like our hypocrisy monitor turned on for the inauguration. Rick, you bring up an interesting thing, which means that, uh, which is with Susan Collins, uh, if she wins, she might be the most powerful woman in America. And if she loses, uh, you know, she'll be looking for a job. Uh, it, it's funny how different that could, could play out. I, I wonder quickly when we're talking about uh, administrative changes to the educational landscape, uh, how durable are the changes that the Trump administration and Betsy DeVos tried to make administratively, given that there wasn't much legislative action? Uh, is it that durable or is it would it be fairly easy for a Biden administration to uh, move on most of them? Donna? You know, there's a process for everything in D.C. Uh, and I think there's plenty that has been listed and cataloged by both campaigns, quite frankly, about what they want to have happen starting in January. I don't suspect that anyone on in the Biden-Harris campaign believes that it would be that difficult to start day one or, you know, first month to start rewriting things and start implementing the changes that they want to see. Uh, there, you know, rules and regulations and guidance, quite frankly, are written and processed a particular way for a reason, uh, because they can be rewritten and reprocessed a different way. And I don't think the, the Biden-Harris campaign has been silent about the kinds of things they would want to see happen. I don't think they've been silent about the kinds of things that they would want to see happen administratively day one or as soon as practical. So I don't think there are going to be any surprises in that space. I'll just say, I think it's harder to, Roberto actually should talk about this because I think it's it's harder to actually implement things than to say it out loud. And, you know, when I look at the list of thousands of hundreds of thousands of things that Biden and Harris are going to do on day one, I also you know remember that they don't have any staff yet. There's nobody in there who works there for their political appointees. And usually what happens is you don't want to hire a lot of your higher level folks until the Senate confirmed folks get through. If they have to get confirmed through a Republican Senate, that is not going to be a short and easy process. So I think, you know, just the logistics of actually getting people in, staffing up, getting your regulatory systems running is going to be, it's going to take longer than any of the Democrats want. Um, and then once you're in, then you have to go through the, you know, 18 month process or whatever it is to change the, the regulations. And, you know, for good reason, it took Trump a while too, but it's not as if Joe Biden can just walk in and sign an executive order and it's done. A lot of these things are going to take a regulatory process that takes staff and we have to get that staff confirmed first. And one thing, just to piggyback on Lene's point here, I mean, this is where it's useful to remember that, that once you reset norms, they tend to stay reset. So it used to be that like confirming a secretary of education was, look, pretty breezy, even if it was one party confirming another. This was low stakes. People should remember that even with the Republican Senate in, 20, in 2017, uh, Betsy DeVos came down to the vice president casting a tie-breaking vote after like hugely contentious hearings. 
Um, the folks on the Hill on both sides have long memories. So if the R's either have 51 seats in the Senate or if it's 50-50, and instead of Senator Snow with Senator Manchin that the whole world is kind of watching all the time, there is going to be a lot of this stuff playing out, which is going to make getting secretaries in place and all potentially instead of a, if you can't kind of get the ducks in line because Republicans hold the Senate and they're inclined to move slow, you could imagine a good chunk of the first hundred days suddenly being a fierce back and forth over cabinet appointees. You know, a bright spot here, on the other hand, is, look, maybe all these guys on both sides say, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. This doesn't do either of us any good. Maybe suddenly there's a forcing mechanism towards something that looks very different from what we've seen the last four years. I wouldn't bet that way. But, you know, a man's allowed to dream. I I like that dream, Rick. (laughs) I think I sure do hope that the Senate's able to act swiftly and, you know, for the sake of, uh, of the country, be able to provide um, confirmation as needed. I, you know, I think uh, you look at the higher education conversation we were just having, you know, there's all, there's the work and we can have the discussion around the, a lot of the work around uh, gainful employment and our defense was regulatory action. It was a lot of regulations. The gainful employment regulation went to the courts you know, it was overturned. We we brought it back. Uh, we recalibrated it. I know this. The Trump administration hasn't liked it. So there's a lot that we can kind of move forward even um, without uh, congressional action there. But the reality is, you know, like you look at the American higher education system. We need to step up as a country and provide that system the resources and the support that it needs to be healthy and to thrive. Uh, And if you look at two thirds of our Pell recipients who are students in our state colleges and universities who are urgently pursuing their degree with support from the Pell Grant to be able to secure a place in a competitive economy, you know, we really owe it to, to students and families to provide the COVID relief that we need to support those institutions. I mean, these state uh, you know, folks that are making these decisions around state budgets, and they have huge demands on their K-12 system, huge demands on their higher education system. That's the majority of most state budgets, right? And they're also balancing demands on their healthcare system and whatnot. I mean, I just, I think it's, uh, we're in unprecedented times, and I really would love to see Congress and the Senate uh, move swiftly to provide the resources here we need, and then have the the deliberative conversation and debate that the Senate is so good at. I mean, I've spent eight years on the Senate Help Committee, uh, confirmed several uh, secretaries in that time. So uh, I have no doubt that the Senate Help Committee will do its job when it comes to the confirmation process. Well, and I I think, you know, what's come up several times is the money piece. And I think one thing here is, look, um, this is where I think the boy that cried whoop syndrome is a real problem. Um, Per pupil, after inflation spending in this country, uh, is up 20 to 25% since 2000. Yet, even before uh, COVID, I was inundated with friends who were telling me that we were disinvesting in and defunding education. I think empirically, that's just not right. It's fair to argue we should spend more. That's a debate we can have. But, uh, you know, but, but I think that is simply, you know, heck, uh, Chancellor Richard Carranza uh, went to the New York City Board of Ed this spring before COVID uh, the New York City schools uh, 
the, their own budget office reports are spending 28,000 bucks a kid. He said, I've already cut through flesh, through muscle and the bone. I'm like, look, dude, I mean, you can argue that you need more money. Don't tell me, don't tell me you've cut in a bone at 28,000 bucks a kid. So for, I think a lot of us on the right, when we hear the talk about, you know, the next cares package, uh, when we, there's there's absolutely a deal to be made. Um, There are absolutely, as I've written numerous times, and because I agree with you, um, unanticipated expenses related to getting schools prepared for social distancing, uh, relating to personal protective equipment, uh, related to, you know, COVID testing. Absolutely. Um, I think a lot of us that were frustrated that even as parents are struggling to take care of their kids, and even as lots of private schools have, have found ways to open up safely, the science pretty clear that schools appear to be with a reasonable precautions, safe environments, in fact, potentially safer environments for these kids, that we have seen lots of school districts, almost half the nation's big school districts still haven't opened or only planning to open. We've seen lots of resistance. The last Friday, a teacher from El Paso wrote a major op-ed in Education Week um, explaining why calls to open the schools sound like right-wing anti-teacher baiting. I'm like, look, we can do a deal here because Donna's exactly right, that it's not just about getting schools back up. It's figuring out how do we give all of our children the schools that all of us, left and right, want to do on the K-12 side and the higher ed side. Um, but but for, for that, I think, to be a real conversation, especially if we're looking at divided government, it can't be about money and then we'll get around to the other stuff. It's got to be about... How are we empowering families? How are we meeting them where they need us to be? How are we providing them the digital support, the choices that they require on their different circumstances? And how do we make sure the resources are there? And I think this is actually a huge opportunity. And it's frustrating to me that it feels like both sides um, have consistently not found a way to have that conversation over the last eight months. Well, and it's not rocket science here, Rick. I mean, to your point, we know if we put $4 billion into the system, we'd be able to fund the E-rate at the, at, the, at the level we need to be able to provide connectivity and digital equity to the kids who need it, right? We have kids that are going to McDonald's and to Starbucks to be able to connect with their teachers, to be able to have access to continuity of learning. I mean, there's huge inequities there. And we know what works in terms of being able to um, you know, reopen schools safely, right? But that is about having a local needs assessment, knowing where the pandemic is, where the levels are, being able to have access to the right equipment, protective equipment that we need, the, the, the right training that we need, the levels of distancing and the class sizes um, that are manageable to be able to do that safely. Uh, and the reality is, you know, I, I, I think your point's well taken that, you know, there's a high level of rhetoric, but I think the reality is that we, our systems are not resourced right now. And, the, and, the federal, and, and yeah, I, I would argue the know, federal government has not, has not stepped up, you know. Well, and, and that's, you know, and that's, you know, again, I mean, you know, we, there's 14,000 districts in the country, so we can all point to examples, but, you know, I'm sitting here in Arlington, Virginia, one of the nation's more affluent systems. Next door is Fairfax County. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, neither of them uh, is letting more than a, a tiny handful of kids back. In Fairfax County, there's a movement um, by the Fairfax County Teachers Association to ask the board to right now announce schools will not open until uh, fall 2021 at the earliest. And to me, this is not a question of resources. This is these are communities that have, you know, according to public health authorities, uh, low, uh, you know, manageable to low rates of infection. 
this is also about a willingness to step up and get it done. And it feels, I think, to many you know, folks I talk to, at least on the right side of the hill, that they're not confident that if they step up and provide money, that that money will actually be used in a way that's making a difference for kids and families. So let's so I think put the parameters larger... around that to be able to do that re- well, right? But it's a question of leadership. And I do think, um, you know, it's leadership. It's not just leadership at the local level. We've not had federal leadership. We've had a bunch of blame and bluster, you know, on the part of superintendents and teachers rather than an actual serious effort at a stimulus. Let me ask a little bit about that leadership that we might be moving forward. Because if we zoom out here, I I think everybody's to some degree surprised at the the strength of Republican voters and and Donald Trump's support and, and red voters just across the spectrum. So that raises the question of what Joe Biden we might see if indeed he wins the nomination, right? You know, I I was voting yesterday and I heard this woman outside saying, you know, every time they say Joe's a moderate, we say, yeah, that's that's not okay. He can't be a moderate. We need somebody progressive. So are we going to see, you know, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, or are we going to see the affable moderate Joe Biden if he wins the nomination? Listen, there, you can say a lot of negative things about Joe Biden, but boy, does he know who he is. He has never been Bernie Sanders. He's been doing this a long time. Uh, and he and he's going to be, this is Joe Biden's party. He's the head of it. And, you know, no matter who is loudest on Twitter, that doesn't matter. What matters is he won the primary, not by a little, by a lot. And he's going to lead in the way that he has outlined and making sure that we can actually get things done. And particularly if there's going to be a divided Senate, that's going to need to be a bipartisan way. But even if it wasn't, it was going to be, as Rick keeps pointing out, Joe Manchin. This isn't, there was never going to be 50 Elizabeth Warrens in the Senate. That's not how this works. They needed a wide range of the caucus and the majority makers in both the House and the Senate are moderates. And so they were going to have this way. But are, are we going to see the the Joe Biden, irrespective of whether he got 370 votes or just eked it out in the last moment? And so I'm wondering if the closeness of this election will uh, a, a affect Joe Biden's actions if he actually wins the nomination. I think the Senate impacts him, but I don't think the electoral vote count does. I mean, uh, did Barack Obama get to do everything he wanted because he ran up the votes in the Electoral College? No. After you get certified, you don't get extra credit for getting more electoral votes. You get to be in the White House and you have the same amount of power. But who you're dealing with on the on the legislative side really does matter. So um, that's why I keep focusing on Congress. I don't I think you know, he's either going to end up with 270 or just over 270, but that's enough to put him there. And then he's in charge. And if he got 330, I don't think he would have done a lot differently, except for that he might have pulled some of those Senate candidates over the line. Just just to build on what Lene was just saying, I think Lene's right, of course. I mean, right, like you think about in 2001, everybody was like, oh, is Bush going to lead tepidly and cautiously because of, you know, Bush v. Gore? And uh, he came out and did the tax cuts and they kind of came out roaring. So I think Lene's obviously right. But, you know, at least uh, tracking this stuff last night and this morning, it does seem like, you know, the two wings of the Democratic Party are going to have a very ferocious conversation about what's the right way to interpret the narrowness. I mean, I think you've already seen uh, progressives saying, aha, this was why we should have run Sanders in the first place. You know, it was crazy to try to cater to Nicole Hannah-Jones of 1619 fame was out this morning. The Cuban-Americans are really just aspiring white supremacists. You know, Latino is a made-up category, she was writing. 
we should have just written them off and like it was never a mistake to court them. Um, and I, so I think you get this wing that like, look, we ought to go harder, faster towards AOC and Sanders. And then I think you see the centrist Democrats who go, no, you guys were the problem. And like, if you guys had, if they hadn't been able to run so many Bidens hanging around the Bernie Sanders commercials, we could have won Florida. And so I think this probably is going to, I would think this will have implications for um, senior staff positions and for how they go about the work of assembling the administration. Jason, what about on the Republican side, right? I mean, it certainly makes a big difference maybe to the Republican Party, generally speaking, but also on education issues if Trump has another turn or or if he loses and there might be some recalibration. How do you see that playing out depending on who actually takes the election? Yeah, I mean, you know, at least in, on, on higher ed stuff, well, you know, under the Trump administration, there hasn't you know, it's hard to sort of say what the, at least what the legislative agenda was, um, you know, and so it was probably more, more of the same of that, uh, I, I would expect. I mean, it, Trump has not really talked about higher education during the campaign. So I, I still don't know really what, what it might be on the Democratic side. You know, I'm, I'm sort of thinking back to Lene's point of Joe Biden is no Bernie Sanders, but his higher ed plan is literally Bernie Sanders' plan. It is his free college plan. He links to Sanders' bill uh, in, in the Senate. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, uh, that's a that's a promise that was made, right? That, had, you know, that promises have been made on, on that, especially also with loan forgiveness, which is a big tangled mess. And also in the legislature, I think they're going to they're gonna have to at least try to do some of that, uh, you know, and I think that's a that's going to be really messy. So we've talked a lot about the partisanship and how that's going to play out. Let's uh, let's think positive for a minute and let's uh, look for opportunities for some bipartisan action. Roberto, do you see any hopes uh, for sort of bipartisan education issues that we we might be able to um, make some progress on, or uh, is 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 Pollyanna just not surviving this election? I mean, I am an optimistic guy here, Nat, when it comes to the potential for bipartisanship still. You know, the Senate looks very different than it did when I worked for uh, the late Senator Kennedy. But it, I do believe there still is um, potential for bipartisanship on so many fronts. Um, I think, first and foremost, on COVID. Again, that comes back to having the right leader in the White House who doesn't try to divide teachers and, and parents, but rather kind of unite us around a, a real recovery and relief package. Uh, but I think on the on higher ed, there's potential. I think if you look at early childhood education, uh, the opportunity to support high quality pre-K, one of the great, one of the best investments we can make uh, in, uh, in terms of return on investment in education. A lot of economists have studied that, look at home visiting, some of those initiatives. Uh, you think about uh, some of the work around career and technical education and uh, really redesigning our system so that we're helping to support our students to prepare for for college, for career, and for the workplace. I'll, I'll strike an optimistic tone there. And I'll add one to that list, which is um, transparency of data for outcomes in higher ed. This is something that Jason and I talk a lot about. 
there might not be, um, you know, broad uh, agreement on a legislative package to really um, put uh, teeth behind some of those uh, bad outcomes, but there certainly is wide bipartisan agreement that we need better data and we need to get rid of the student unit record, um, the student unit record ban so that we can actually make sure that we're seeing what are the outcomes that students are having when they're taking out bajillions of dollars of federally funded loans and then getting nothing back for it. So, um, you know, the College Transparency Act has a ridiculous amount of bipartisan sponsors on both the House and the Senate side. I think, you know, it's it's really um, gaining steam. And it's something that Obama liked, that Betsy DeVos liked, and now that I think the incoming Biden administration will like to just keep giving consumers and researchers like us more access to the data so that we can figure out what should we be investing in in higher ed. I would also add E-rate to that bipartisan um, or issues that have bipartisan support. Uh, and support for rural areas, rural communities, uh, which um, in most of the rural communities, the schools are the hub of the community. Um, it is, it's the anchor. Uh, and so looking at ways to make sure that uh, all of our communities have, have the investments that they need. Um, I know, Rick, you don't like to talk about the money, but it takes money sometimes to get things done. Uh, when you've got crumbling buildings, it takes money to rebuild or to fix. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those things are, are coming, are hitting us in the face, quite frankly, in the middle of the pandemic. It is some of the reason why some schools can't open because it is not safe. They can't open the windows or they can't close the windows or there's no heat or there's no, it, like whatever the issue is, um, it is in some cases, uh, it is not because of the best efforts of families, students, or educators that the school cannot open, or even you know community health leaders. It is literally the physical infrastructure of the education system. And that's not just contained to K-12, that is also some institutions on the higher ed side. Um, so I think all of that is gonna come into play and that definitely a bipartisan issue. You know, I think one way to think about this too is look, if Trump actually winds up winning out of this thing, um, <laughs> for better and worse, this is going to be Trump's party. It'll have been a half century since Ronald Reagan, you know, 40 years almost when, when Trump leaves office, since Reagan was in office. Um, Trump will have actually won re-election. Um, you know, a whole generation of Republican office holders will have come up and gotten used to doing business under this. And while I think Jason's exactly right, that it's hard to see any evidence of like a legislative agenda on higher ed or K-12 really outside of like, Education Freedom Scholarships, which assuming the Dems hold the House, which it looks like they will, isn't really moving far. Um, but there's going to be, right, there, there, there's going to be energy to do something. And I think the realities of pandemic and, and post-pandemic life mean that it'll be on the agenda. And there's probably going to be a deals for Congress to strike. If Biden wins, um, the stuff Jason alluded to, it, you know, people have not, I think, appreciated how incredibly a remarkably ambitious, like the Biden free college plan. Uh, but also because of that, it was always going to require doing away with the filibuster. And I think the, for the doing away with the filibuster to have ever been in play, I think the Dems really needed to get to like at least 52, 53 seats in the Senate because it was 50-50. I don't think they were going to get Manchin to go along. Even at 51, it would have been hard. Um, even if the Dems have a good, you know, post-election count, I don't think anybody's really seeing them getting past about 50 best case, maybe 51 for them. So that stuff's not happening. So all of a sudden, Biden's higher, I think Biden does want to move in higher ed. And he's absolutely going to have to be in deal-making mode. 
And, you know, Biden and Mitch McConnell have known each other for decades. Um, the House is going to be a lot closer. I think it'll be very much up in the air about how this plays out. And I think it partly depends on the pressure that, that our elected officials feel from the bases and from, from the voters and what we're demanding. And I think it also depends on how much they're able to put on their big boy pants. So really, really quickly, we just have a couple of minutes before the end of this. And I want to just hit all of us, all of you rather. And Jason, I might start out with you. Final question for you. What's the most consequential education issue or fallout that's hanging in the balance with the results of, of this election from your perspective? I think it's how hard the Democrats tried to make good on this promise of free college. You know, if it's if there's uh, the Democratic Senate and and House and White House, you know, they, how hard do they try? They're going to have to try something because the promise was made. Uh, but if it's more split, I don't know. Does the the issue that hasn't really gone away in four years? But how much did they keep talking about it? That's what I think hangs in the balance. Roberto. Um, I continue to believe that, again, I just will come back to COVID recovery and relief being the first and foremost priority. I think that's what's on the mind of parents and teachers and administrators and the public. Donna, what's the most consequential issue hanging in the balance of this election? So I think I'd tee off of the, the COVID response and say that it is absolutely a transformational moment for education, both in K-12 and higher ed. Uh, and we, it would behoove us all to take advantage of it uh, and make sure we're actually thinking about what we want students to actually achieve and be able to do when they leave, uh, when they graduate, and make the system design focused on that. Tough to do, uh, certainly a long-term goal, but if we don't take the steps now, as we make these interim decisions along the way, we're never going to get there. Lene? Uh, if you're asking what is going to look the most different, depending on how the election goes, I think uh, it's all the things that they'll do by executive order, because I do not believe that Congress is going to be, uh, you know, making major revolutionary changes in society over the next two years, much as I might want them to. So on the higher ed side, that's dealing with for profits. That's, you know, dealing with borrower defense and predatory schools on the K-12 side. It's things we haven't talked about, like uh, social issues, you know, how do we deal with transgender kids? How do we deal with uh, um, disparate impact policies on um, on suspensions? All of those, um, how do we deal with Title IX? All of those uh, social issues that Rick and I love to talk more about. So we'll have to do a different podcast on that. Rick? Three quick things. One, uh, at times it's felt like the conversation has kind of assumed that Biden is going to win. I would just caution viewers. I think that's very much up in the air. If you had to bet right now, I think you'd probably bet Biden wins, but I think it's more like 60-40 than 80-20. So folks should pay attention and be forewarned. Second thing is that we haven't talked about what I think might, for me, was the most interesting uh, result last night, which was in California, they had an affirmative action uh, initiative on the ballot, which Joe Biden won California by 30 points, by 30 points. And yet, the, uh, yet uh, the proposition that would have uh, un, uh, reversed California's ban on affirmative action lost by 10. That means a 40-point swing. You had tons of Biden voters who are opposed to reinstating affirmative action. I think we absolutely need to think about and understand what that says and what that means. When that's, if that happened in Oklahoma or Kansas, it would be one thing. 
when that's happening in California on the presidential ballot, I think that deserves a lot of attention. And the third thing is if the Senate isn't there for, if Biden wins and the Senate's not there for him uh, in January, keep in mind that the 2022 uh, Senate field also lines up much better for Republicans. So all of a sudden you're talking about, not a, a, to Lene's point, more executive action than legislation. It's very possible that Biden comes in day one and never has you know, a friendly Senate in, in, in a first term. And you know we shouldn't understate the importance of what that might mean for their strategy and their approach. Well, you brought it up, 2022. That's the next time that we'll be here for this event, Rick. And, and by then, I'm pretty sure we'll know the outcome of this election. So uh, thanks, everybody, for being here. We hope you have a great day. And thanks for uh, attending. Thanks for listening to the Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to all those who participated in this panel discussion. Lene Erickson, Donna Harris-Akins, Roberto Rodriguez, Jason Delisle, and Rick Hess. Thanks also to the producers who make this podcast possible. That's Matt Rice and Olivia Leslie. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're there, take a minute to leave us a review so other folks can find the show. As always, you can send your comments, questions, or topic suggestions to us at ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.